Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, we're back with the Good Life Podcast, and I am pleased today to have Michael Sakasis with us. Mr. Sakasis is the Associate Director for Educational Programming at the Christian Studies Center in Gainesville, Florida, and he's also uh, Associate Fellow in Ethics and Culture at the Greystone Theological Institute. For years, he had a blog called The Frailest Thing, which I'm sure he, hopefully he will talk about, you know, the, the reason behind that name in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And now he has a Substack newsletter that I highly recommend called The Convivial Society. Now, I, I had the, the privilege of meeting Michael a few years back when we were in Lewiston, Idaho, and I was a pastor out there, and he came and spoke to, he was speaking at, at another church in the area, but he kindly agreed to speak also for a parenting group at our church. So, and that was, that was a lot of fun. We all learned a lot. So anyway, so Michael, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah. So glad to chat. So just start out, but by talking about just your background, your relationship to the faith, you know, what, what, what's kind of your, your, your story from beginning to, to where you are now. Uh, sure. Yeah. I, I, um, uh, came to faith, uh, in, in my youth, uh, in the context of a, um, uh, a Baptist church, uh, where I grew up, I grew up in Miami, Florida. Um, that faith, uh, you know, matured over the years. Uh, and, um, I uh, attended a small uh, liberal arts Christian college uh, that uh, is, is now actually defunct, uh, Clearwater Christian College. Uh, it, it was in that period where I uh, began um, gravitating towards Reformed theology and um, uh, ended up moving into uh, the Presbyterian tradition. Uh, I, I was a, after undergrad, I um, did an MA in theological studies at Reformed Theological Seminary uh, in Orlando. Uh, I was there from 99 to 2002. Uh, it, it was actually there that I, I first began to think about uh, the relationship that technology might have to how we live our lives and uh, the kinds of communities that we're a part of uh, that um, that actually became um, you know, kind of a major project uh, in my own work and writing and thinking over the years um, and uh, have, uh, yeah, remained uh in the, in the Presbyterian tradition uh, since then, um, have been glad to play a role in uh, Christian schools. Um, I was an adjunct uh, for a while at Bellhaven College, where uh, there was actually an extension in Orlando, uh, the main campus over in, in Jackson, uh, Mississippi, as you may know. Um, and um, uh, a, a fellow at, um, at the Grayson Theological Institute um, that I um, is. Uh, run, founded and run by uh, my lifelong friend, uh, Mark Garcia. So, um, yeah, lots of uh, different contexts um, in which, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to think and reflect about what it means to um, to think Christianly about the moral life, about uh, the choices we make with our tools, about the, the shape society gives, the technology gives to our society and and have had the, um, you know, the pleasure of uh, continuing that work here at the Study Center, at the Christian Study Center in Gainesville. Um, where uh, that's in essence kind of what we do, try to, to bring the, um, the best of the intellectual tradition to bear on um, our thinking about society or thinking about what um, the shape our culture takes and, um, and what it means to live faithfully in that context. So your work at the Christian Study Center, is that something that do you work directly with the college students at UF or is that distinct from it? What is what is the relationship and and kind of the impetus behind that? Right. Um, so uh, we're not affiliated with the university uh, directly. Um, so there there's a, a loose network of thirty to forty, uh, maybe a, a few more uh, study centers. They don't have, all have study center in their name. Um, you know, they may be called something like Anselm House, which is at the University of Minnesota, or Chesterton House in um, at Cornell. Uh, but they all have a, a kind of a similar DNA, which is that they, um, 
the way I would say is that they're, they're rather than being uh, parachurch ministries in the, in the sense that we might think of uh, of crew or intervarsity uh, or young life or something of that uh, of that sort or RUF, um, we think of ourselves as, as a para-university institution. In other words, our, our focus is on the life of the mind. Um, this will range a little bit depending on the study center. Some will have a little bit more programming that um, feels more like campus ministry uh, in terms of, of being uh, sort of designed around fellowship. Um, but uh, here, certainly, you know, we have uh, reading groups. Uh, we have uh, a class for undergraduate and graduate students. Uh, we host lectures uh, from um, whether it's our staff or uh, guest scholars from the university or from um, that we bring from from other locations. Uh, and so we try to cultivate a space for thoughtful reflection, um, for for meaningful conversation, uh, and again, to kind of represent uh, the intellectual tradition here in the context of the university community as best we can. So we do um, work directly with students that, that come our way. We also um, try to build good relationships with faculty, whether they're Christian or non-Christian faculty at the university. Um, and uh, we, we also see the local clergy, local campus ministers as, um, you know, another contingent that we try to um, uh, to work with and serve in, in, in various capacities throughout, throughout the school year. Yeah. Okay. So before we, we go too far into mm-hmm. this discussion, we need to probably define some terms for mm-hmm. people because I don't want, I mean, most people, when you say the word technology, people generally know what that's talking about. But it actually helps, I think, to have some 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 tangible handles, you know, that we that we can use when we're when we're having this discussion. So, how do you define, in short form, tech, the word technology? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a uh, wonderful question and a great question to start with. And in fact, if I, when I'm, whenever I'm doing what I think of as a uh, sort of uh, technology 101 class that's, or, or, or talk or whatever, that's, that's what I start with. What is technology? Um, and um, and it's, a, it's a good question to start with, um, but it's also uh, an almost impossible question to answer succinctly. Certainly. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, one thing to note about the word, so, so rather than answering your question directly, I'm going to talk about it. Um, Great. One thing to note about even the word technology is that uh, it's relatively recent. Uh, it's a relatively recent addition to the English language um, in the way that we use it, right? Uh, and, and by relatively recent, I would say that um, you're, you're, it's probably not until the early to mid-20th century that the word technology gets used as the kind of catch-all term uh, that we tend to to use in the way that we tend to use it, right? And, and by catch-all, what I mean by that is if, um, you know, if I were sitting in a room with you or, or giving a talk somewhere, I would ask people to look around the room and say, you know, ask them, where's the technology in this room? And, uh, and, and pretty soon, you know, if I look around my room right where I'm at right now in my office, right, I have a, a whiteboard in front of me, that's technology. There's, a, there's there are markers there. Um, there's a phone. I have a, a computer that I'm using right now. I have earphones. I have a calendar. Um, I have a pencil in my hand. Uh, all of these are forms of technology, right? Um, you know, defined uh, defined broadly. I think the, 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 the temptation, I think, often is to think of technology as um, new, relatively new gadgets, right? So my smartphone, maybe, or my smart speaker, if I have, you know, uh, Alexa or something in my home, uh, or or maybe not a car, but um, uh, an electric car, or an autonomous vehicle. Maybe we think of as, as technology. Uh, but in fact, it all is right. This is all technology, right down to to you know writing itself, right? The lang- you know, the, the the forms of inscription that we use to put words into writing—that's a technology. So, it's this expansive category. Um, it, it includes um, you know from from the mundane pencil in my hand to uh, the satellites that make the what we're doing right now possible, uh, and it, it captures all of these things together. Uh, in such a way that in, in some respects it becomes a kind of useless term um, when when you're trying to have a, a critical and thoughtful discussion about it. Uh, so for instance, you know, it's it's not uncommon to um, hear people ask or, or claim that someone is anti-technology. Um, and in some respects, that's, that's a, it's almost a nonsensical claim, right? Because there's, it's impossible to be anti-technology in principle, right? Because uh, the, what we use to make our food, the shelter we provide for ourselves, the clothing, right? All of this fits in that category. Um, 
And I think you'd be very, very hard pressed to find anybody who is consistently anti-technology, right? So um, the, the word sometimes gets in, our, in the way of attempting to think about um, these realities that we're trying to understand. So I sometimes use the phrase, you know, the, the human built world, right? Or our human built uh, milieu. And um, by that, I, you know, I, I, I try to suggest that, you know, our, or, our, or material culture maybe is another way of talking about it. Um, but again, up until uh, mid to early 20th century, uh, there was, technology didn't serve this function in our language. In fact, uh, it, it meant what we tend to associate with words that end in ology, right? So biology, the study of life, theology, the study of God, geology, the study of, of, of rocks, right, of the earth. Um, and technology was uh, uh, mid-19th mid century, for example, is the study of techne, of how you make things. Uh, and this is, for example, the way it's uh, intended in, uh, in the name of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, right? Uh, it, MIT was where you went to learn how to make things. It, didn't ref it wasn't um, uh, uh, a designation for the things you made, but for the study of making, right? And, and stemming from that Greek word techne, uh, which is sometimes translated art or, uh, or craft. Um, so when I talk about technology, I, I, in a sense, mean to include all of these things, but then I very quickly want to move us to, to specific cases, uh, although there are, I think, patterns within the wider you know, techno-social milieu uh, that we can begin to identify. But I, I think it's often important to ask about particular technologies um, and sort of avoid, as far as possible, making broad generalizations about whether technology is bad or good. Um, you know, those claims, I think, uh, don't get us very far. So, so that's not quite a direct answer, but I think I'd say anything that you can uh, point out and say that wouldn't be here if humans didn't exist, uh, in some respects, can be, you know, justly ca you know, categorized as what we think of as technology. Okay. So... So even, <clears throat> excuse me, some of what the Bible calls wisdom, particularly the, the men who were, who were crafters, craftsmen mm -hmm. who were able to help build the tabernacle, it said that God had given them the spirit of wisdom. So that, mm -hmm. that from what I hear you saying, could be considered uh, technology in the sense that we're talking about. Right. So what? I, so here's another helpful way. And yes. So so short answer. Yes. Right. So the the craftsmen working, uh, whether with fabrics to make the uh, the uh, curtains of the tabernacle, or uh, working in bronze to uh, create the implements that uh, were part of worship. Um, these are um, they they are they are creating. They're technologists, right? They're creating technology. Um, one other thing that I do, in, instead of def giving a, a definition of technology, right, which is not impossible, I, I just I don't know, you know, how useful it is, but um, is to distinguish uh, between uh, certain levels of what we might think of as the technological dimensions of life, right. So, uh, at the foundational concrete level, you have uh, artifacts, devices, tools, right, things that you can in a sense, hold in hand or, or very concretely point to, right? And say, well, this thing here, this is a, a tool, a device, an artifact, a technology. Um, and that's that's pretty easy, you know, to wrap our heads around. Um, but if, if you go a, a level of, of abstraction above that, we might think of uh, technological systems, right? So, um, you know, one older example that works to illustrate this is that uh, you know the, the the railway car, right, or the, or the railroad. Uh, you could you could imagine standing in front of a rail um, you know railroad engine uh, engine car and saying that that's a technology, right? It's a it's a fairly advanced industrial age technology, um, but it doesn't run on its own, right? You you need to build a network of railways, right, in order to make this function, and it also depends on um, the mining of of coal for its operation. You know? And so there's this whole system that starts to uh, build around the discrete artifact in order to help that artifact work, right? Um, you know, a more contemporary example is we can think of the communication networks that make possible uh, what we're doing right now, right? So the, the computer, the, the broadband networks, um, you know, the satellites, uh, the, the code that, that generates the images on our screen, all of that is a... Is a hugely complex system 
um, that makes the discrete parts work the way we want them to work. Um, and but that that system also interestingly has not only uh, kind of material components, but it often ends up having uh, social social com components as well, right? So one thing that uh, the railroads ended up necessitating uh, were uh, synchronized or standardized time, right? So the the time zones were a way of sort of helping synchronize the the movement of railroads across their tracks in order to avoid accidents, right? So you you then get uh, these these social out, uh, outcomes that are tied to helping create you know a technology that's going to work efficiently and safely, uh, and so the system incorporate ends up incorporating more than just the tool and 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 all the parts of the system to make that tool work. Um, you know, likewise with the automobile. Uh, you know, th this is um, you know a common example, but uh, what we think of as suburbia, right? Suburbia is is a, uh, a, a, a geographic and and social outcome of the invention of the automobile, right? And so it has, uh, you know, that has had social consequences, the consequences of the family for work life, uh, you know, political consequences in terms of creating a, a different kind of constituency from that, which is centered in urban urban centers and rural centers. Um, so that, that, that systemic level, right, that level where the tool depends on a system and then generates systemic effects. Um, and then, you know, even um, a, a level beyond that, we might also talk about um, technique, right? So I, I'm, I'm borrowing this word from, from Jacques Ellul, and we can talk more about him later, but he's a you know, brilliant uh, French polymath of the 20th century, um, a lay theologian in his own right, um, and uh, wrote extensively uh, about technology. And he, he used technique to include technologies, as we think of it, but also um, a kind of uh, disposition that uh, today I think we would say something like it, it's um, uh, the, the imperative to optimize, right? To always look for the most efficient right. way of doing something, right? Um, and that, that becomes, you know, I think of that as in this continuum of the technological, right? From the material to the system to a way of thinking, right? To a way of approaching problems. Um, you know, one... Uh, this I realize is you know a little abstract, but but one way of thinking about this that, that I think um, kind of drives the point home is that there there are an increasing number of uh, of scholars and practitioners uh, that are beginning to approach death uh, not as a a feature of the human condition, right, with with moral and existential dimensions, uh, but you know as they might put it as an engineering problem, right? Yes. And so if if we can approach the, the sources of, of human frailty of, of, of you know aging in the body as an engineering problem, um, then you know perhaps it's a problem that can be solved, right? So so death is no longer, uh, or even aging, you know, say, uh, is is no longer uh, you know a, a a matter of human wisdom, uh, of spiritual insight, of moral formation. It, it doesn't live in those categories anymore. Now it lives in the categories of. Uh, of a technical problem for which we, we we want a technical solution, right? And so it changes the meaning of that experience for the human being when you approach it as uh, an engineering problem or, or a technical problem that is susceptible to a technological solution. Uh, and so there's there's that more abstract way of bringing technology, uh, a technological way of thinking, uh, or a th way of thinking that that turns towards the technological to areas of life that you know we we would not ordinarily have thought about in those terms uh, historically or, or traditionally, um, and it's not and, a question uh, that well, that we can avoid. Uh, everyone has a has some type of view of technology, you know, and, and everyone has limits that they put on how much they want to allow technology in. You know, some. Oftentimes, it can seem like there's a there's a, a sharp distinction between people who are for technology and those who are against technology. Mm -hmm. So all the knuckle draggers out there who who just you know still refuse to buy uh, a, a smartphone or mm -hmm. fill in the blank, you know whatever it is. Right. But everyone draws the line at some point, even if it you know no parent says to their three-year-old here, I'm going to let you drive this car. Right. 
you know, so that's a lie. And I think probably every, at least every Christian would say, if, if we had the power to make every person around us do exactly what we wanted, that is not a technological power we should have. That is right. intrinsically wrong. So if we with that, hope, yeah, right. sure, certainly, certainly. <laughs> but with, with those, those two examples, everyone will draw that line. I say everyone, again, we hope every Christian mm-hmm. at least would draw those lines. So it's not that no one, it's not that you have some people with lines and others who don't. It, it's a matter of where do you draw them? Right, right. Uh, and, and how open are you to um, sort of a, a adapting, kind of letting the chips fall where they will and, and cleaning up the messes after after the fact? Right. And and, and that that has an interesting history. And and, you know, I think in, in Western culture, maybe specifically in American culture, historically, uh, we banked a lot on technology. Um, you know, I would kind of make the argument that um, it, what we sort of associate with the enlightenment optimism about progress um, was understood very broadly as, as uh, moral progress, intellectual progress, political progress. But during the 19th century, it gets, it gets very narrowly uh, defined as technological progress. And so as long as we see technological progress, we then can sort of assume that our society is advancing and, and maturing and heading in the right direction. Um, and so wherever we have had periods where uh, it seems as if technology is stagnating, and there are some people who would make that argument, even of our, our present moment, um, there's a kind of anxiety because we've tied the health of our society to the ability to make measurable and, uh, and, and, and significant technological progress. Uh, and so we've invested a lot in it. Um, and, I, and I think also it's the case that mostly, I think, People have thought about technology. Well, I should say, you know, I think uh, many people haven't thought about technology historically, right? They haven't. They haven't. It hasn't been something that they've necessarily needed to think about very critically. Um, there, are, there are exceptions to that, but uh, around, I, I would say, around um, the the early nineteenth century, you begin to get more. You begin to see, I think, more and more critical reflection about what we think of as technology. Uh, although at the time they may have been calling it, uh, you know, the mechanical arts or uh, invention or something like that. Um, and the reason for that is, is that this, and this is a kind of contested point, right? But my case would be that, that you, there is a, uh, an acceleration of technological change uh, so that society is, uh, receives these kind of shocks that, that it isn't able to absorb uh, in the same way that you know, historically, for example, um, you know, uh, a society may have been able to, to sort of absorb the, in, the introduction of, of the water mill, which may have over time kind of changed the dimensions of labor to some degree or, or the way a city was organized to, to some degree. Um, but you begin to get rapid, rapid and significant technological change in a way that I think forces the question, right? Uh, my, the world around me is changing. The way I, I relate to others is changing. Uh, and, and then you begin to, to get more critical reflection on this thing, right? Our tools, what we've made. Um, and, and I think that we're, I think in a period now where that's become even more heightened, I think in the last probably seven years or so, maybe five, seven years, uh, you've seen a, some more critical voices uh, question, and, and this is sort of across the political social spectrum, um, question the role that technology has in our lives. Um, but, bef- but before that, I would say that sort of the default is to think of technology as a neutral tool. Um, you know, te- technology is neutral. Uh, what matters is what we do with it. Uh, and so, so yeah, just you, you invent, adopt, and ask questions later, if at all. Um, and again, I, I think that uh, may be changing to some degree, but that's been generally the, I think, the pattern in American society uh, historically. With so, a few notable exceptions, like the Amish, for example. Right, right. Mm-hmm. They, they're often the, the ones that people, you know, when you're in a conversation, the person who doesn't 
you know, the person who says, actually, I don't think we need an, I think I need an Instagram or you know, account or TikTok. And the person says, what are you want to be Amish? What, what, you know, what's the problem? Right. So, so it's, there, right, there's right, not right, much right. in between now. Right. Or, sh- go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say, or, or worse, a Luddite, you know, the, when you really want oh, to yes. slur them. Yeah, it's a, it's a Luddite, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yes. So, Actually, just I know you already know this, but Kirkpatrick Sale has an, a really in, helpful book on the history of the Luddites mm-hmm. that, that I, I, I've looked at. And, and it's not in, I mean, now Sale is very much on their side. And I have to say, I mean, he does present a case for them that I've never heard presented by anyone in the past. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's helpful at least to just get the opinion of the losing side in, mm-hmm. in, right, in, right. In, in, in that discussion. Right. And that they weren't just, a, they, they just weren't anti-technology, right? They're, right. Uh, there's a way of life uh, that they're trying to defend uh, their livelihood. Um, they, they were, they were very selective uh, in the way that they protested through the, through the break, breaking of certain machines. Um, and that, um, you know, it, it had uh, dimensions of t- what today we would sort of classify as, as um, you know, a kind of la- a labor rights, right? So it, uh, it's, a, it's a much more complicated picture, to say the least, right, than the right. way that it's usually framed as you know, sort of backwards reactionaries or just breaking technologies because they don't like them. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I hope, you know, what we can consider is that a few of the people who have influenced you, I know, you know, in reading your newsletter and, and your blog before that, we can't get to everyone as much mm-hmm. as I would like that. Mm-hmm. But you now, correct me if I'm wrong, you wrote your master's thesis, though, on uh, Hannah Arendt. Is, is that is that true? Well, it was going to be the case. So I was in a PhD program, uh, which I left ABD or all but dissertation. I was, I was beginning to write my dissertation. Uh, and the dissertation was going to center around the work of Hannah Arendt. Okay. Um, and um, so that's, so, so yeah, so that's, that's where that comes in. And, and she's remained a very important um, uh, voice in, in my own thinking. Uh, and in fact, I, we just wrapped up, we did a reading group uh, this semester here at uh, the study center on with Hannah Arendt as, as our uh, focus. So yes, she's, she's been very important for me. Well, a, a lot of people in, in, in the circles where I've read uh, in the last several years, they talk about her as the, the prophetic voice of totalitarianism, you know, her, with her book on totalitarianism and then mm-hmm. You know her book, uh, "The Banality of Evil," but you refer often to her book, "The Human Condition," mm-hmm. as a unique contribution to the discussion, you know, of technology and 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 what is the role of of technique in society. So, you know, what is her contribution to this discussion? That is a good question. Um, so it, it, <laughs> I'm going to try to give a good answer to it. Um, so I think what I've it, part of what I wanted to argue in the dissertation um, was that there is an implicit philosophy of technology in her work. Um, so she never writes a book about technology per se. The human condition is, is not a book about technology in the conventional sense. Um, but she is thinking about technology in a lot of her work. Um, and for example, in the preface to the human condition, uh, which I think is, is sort of worth the price of admission on its own, and, and your readers can, I think, pretty easily find a PDF of that preface online. But um, she, she says the impetus for, for thinking about this book, for thinking about the, the, the theme of this book, uh, were, were two things. And these, she's writing in the, in the mid-1950s. Uh, the first was Sputnik, right? So the, the, the launch, so late 1950s, so the launch of Sputnik is one thing that kind of spurs her to think about the human condition. Um, and, and specifically what she means by the human condition, she, she is going to, in that book, think about action, right? So I'm gonna, I'll give a little background then kind of uh, you know, answer the question more directly. Um, 
if we, if you know, your listeners may may be familiar with the division between you know the the, the active life of the vita activa and the the contemplative life, the life of the mind, uh, and in the in the human condition, she is focusing on uh, the life of action, the life of doing, and so she divides that actually into three categories, and and this is I think you know part of my affinity um, for rent is that uh, she she makes a lot of good distinctions, uh, and she. She won't tell you what to think, but I think she helps us think through things. Um, and, and in making these distinctions, for example, of the, the active life, she distinguishes between uh, labor, which she connects to uh, biological life, right? Just, just labor is what the human being needs to do in order to survive in the world, right? To produce food or secure food, shelter. Uh, this is the realm of labor tied to biological life um, and, and often was connected to the household historically. Uh, then from labor to work, uh, by work, she, she means very specifically the, the work of building a common world uh, and creating the, 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 the layer of, of human culture that outlives any one person, right? The, so we're born into a world that is a result of work, not the earth, but a world that's a result of work, a human world, uh, and that human world will outlive us. And so work is the contribution to this sort of stable element of the, of the human life world. Uh, and then action. So uh, uh, labor, work, action. And action is political, right? And for her, that she's, she's you know, um, some would say overly um, enamored of the Greek polis and the ideals of the, of the Greek democratic, um, Greek, Greek, ancient Greek democratic ideals. Uh, but the, the life of action, the political life, uh, the life where we stand before our fellows and uh, and and move them with our words or sway the way that uh, you know our, our our community is going to to live. That was a, the highest form of human uh, action of human of human doing, right? Um, and so, in, in working on this and in, in being drawn to think about that, she she says Sputnik does this right because it it suggests a, a totally different relationship to, to our life world that we're now able to. Um, place a human-made satellite uh, in orbit and, and all that kind of comes with that. The other thing is automation. Uh, so we have a lot of talk today about automation, its relationship to, to employment, whether you know, it's going to displace workers um, you know, to such a degree that you know, we need to resort to uh, universal basic income. So they're, they're, this is you know, part of our, um, our own kind of uh, rhetorical context. The first wave of that kind of discourse happens in the 1950s. Uh, and so she she is looking at these early signs of the uh, the role that automation may play in leaving people um, without means of work or income. Um, and so she's spurred to think about um, what it means to be human in a sense, and what it means to be you know active in the world uh, because of these technological developments. So she she. She also has this, and she's not a Christian. She's she's Jewish, uh, but she's not religiously Jewish, right? She's, she's agnostic. I think is probably the best way of describing, it, if not just an outright atheist. Um, but she's very conversant with not only the Jewish theological tradition, but the Christian theological tradition. She wrote her dissertation on Saint Augustine and, and love and, and the work of Saint Augustine, um, and she has this way of speaking about um, the human condition as as given as a gift, and she refers to it as a, as a gift from nowhere, secularly speaking. Uh, and so that, um, that approach to, to thinking about the human being being properly at home, in the earth, in a body, and living within certain limits is a very helpful, you know, I think, you know, even, even Christians have a very good job of thinking in those terms, right? Uh, where we're tempted by the Promethean vision of technology that makes us do, you know, allows us, promises to allow us to do whatever we want on our terms and to, and, and you know, the, the you know, enter, puts us in a relationship of mastery uh, to the world or over the world and even to other human beings. But, but I think Arendt encourages us to, um, to think more critically about what it means that the, the earth is properly our home, um, that, you know, human the human that there's a human scale uh, to the shape of our communities that is appropriate and good, uh, and 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 beyond that, num numerous distinctions that she makes. You know, for example, in that book between the, the private, the public, and what she calls the social, um, you know, this realm that opens up 
because of mass society in the 20th century. Um, so I, it would be hard for me to encapsulate, you know, what is the one insight that Arendt gives us? I think it's just that she is thinking through many of these questions in a, in a way that is very fruitful for me, right? That I have found uh, very useful in reapplying certain categories or thinking through current developments through some of the terminology that she provides me with and some of the, the uh, again, categories and arguments that she makes. So you know, I'm not sure how satisfying an answer that is, but- Oh but no, she's great. That, 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 yeah. it, it is a helpful answer. She's, she's always intrigued me. I have yeah. not given a lot of attention to, to her writing, but you know, mm -hmm. her, her philosophical background with Heidegger and mm -hmm. Carl Jaspers mm -hmm. just, mm -hmm. it, it's just interesting. It was an interesting time philosophically in Europe mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the United States then. But that yeah. leads me kind of to, to my other, or to my next question, which is, you know, considering that period in the post-war United States, uh, Britain, and on the continent of Europe, you had a, you had several men and women who were questioning where we are headed now. So, you know, Alan Jacobs wrote a book, mm -hmm. uh, I think about, I don't know, the title's 1945, the year of our Lord, 1945, or something like mm -hmm. that. 41, 1941, I think, or Oh, 42. 41, okay, thank you, yeah. thank you. That's, turn around on my I've, shelf I've got it on my around. shelf inside, 40, so. 43, you can... 43. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm, I'm, just I'm, looked at it, yeah. A good, a good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did. So one yeah. of those early 1940 years, but mm -hmm. it, where he, but he talks about thinkers like mm -hmm. you know C.S. Lewis, which I don't know if I can make it through one podcast without bringing Lewis up <laughs> at some point. Yeah. So you know C.S. Lewis, Auden, uh, T.S. Eliot, Simone right. Weil, yep. and and others. So what was it? though, that, that precipitated this unique conflagration of people who are all thinking and, and, and in their own way, not, they're not just thinking, but they're, they're warning, we need to be careful about where this is going. Yeah. So what precipitates this? What, what, what gave rise to this? Right. Well, I mean, um, in, in, in that time period, right, the the um, the rise of uh, totalitarianism uh, and and specifically the threat that um, uh, Nazism posed to European, well, it, you know, in some respects, it, it it's hard to disassociate it from European civilization, um, but but it is also this threat to European civilization, um, and you know, I, I think it's hard for us to put ourselves in. Um, in their shoes and to, to see the, 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 the threat of, of even a kind of global cataclysm um, that becomes more pronounced um, with the dropping of the atomic bombs at the end of the war, uh, but that that's the direction towards which uh, we were trending, right? And, uh, you know, and I, I think, you know, if you go back, so these were, uh, all of these were people who came of age um, around the time of World War One or in its immediate aftermath, right? And and we're still grappling with the the application of industrialization to human warfare and, and its unprecedented consequences and the, the kind of suffering at scale that and destruction at scale that it had caused and how that's consummated in um, in the conventional dimensions of the Second World War uh, and and that there is a spirit in this you know and I think. Um, you know, it's funny, Jacobs just, Alan just had a, um, an article that came out in the latest uh, issue of the New Atlantis, which is a, a journal I, I certainly highly recommend to your audience. Um, and uh, in it, he, uh, he's, uh, I think the title is something like, why are we all going nuts? Uh, and he encourages us to, to reflect on demonology. Yes. Um, or what we, you know, we might think of this, the, the, the principalities and powers, you know, I think, I think Jacques Ellul does a little bit of this at some point, but, but that there are in there the are, new demons. A, yeah, there's a spirit. That's right, a spirit in the air um, that they judge to be just inhumane, um, 
And, and that part of this is tied up with what Lewis captures so uh, well in, um, well, in prose form or, or in, 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 in a more didactic form, right, in the abolition of man, but then gets incorporated into a narrative in um, that hideous strength, right? That there is this um, threat that, that by our ability in, in this quest to master nature, uh, we, are, we are ultimately going to render the human being obsolete um, or, or we're going to risk annihilating right, the human being as we know it, uh, as we've known it. Uh, and of course, Lewis was very perceptive about this because he understood that, you know, the, as he puts it, right, the, the power of men over nature really turns out to be the power of some men over others, right? Um, and so I, there, there's, there's, I think, a palpable existential threat, right, that they sense, moral, ethical, um, you know, in the case of these five thinkers, it has religious dimensions, um, and, but it's driven in part by what we are now able to do and this spirit of this technocratic spirit that has been driven so much of, of this, uh, development of our destructive capacities. Um, and that even apart from the, you know, the very evident, um, deployment of, of, of weaponry, um, with, you know, mass destructive capacities, but there's a, a, a way of thinking about life that we might think of as um, uh, as deeply bureaucratic, right? Uh, coldly technological. Um, that was was itself a kind of threat uh, to what they valued and what they held dear, and the and the, the the you know the. I almost want to suggest maybe this is a good time to mention the title of my old blog, right? The the frailty of the human condition. Uh, but that in, in an effort to overcome that frailty, uh, we would end up, you know, uh, worse off than, than where we were to begin with in some respects. Um, but anyway, get, that, that's shooting off in a lot of different directions. But that, yeah, I think that's what they're responding to, um, and, per, and perceptively so. Yes, yes. Yeah, the, 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 that war, and I, I know we can we can talk about atrocities in any war but in my I taught American history and world history for mm -hmm. 15 years mm -hmm. and I've always had a, a catch internally when I when I consider you know of course the the, the atomic bomb question has been debated quite a bit uh, and a reasonable debate, certainly. But just one that is not debated, sadly, is the Allied firebombing of Dresden, yeah, right, right. which killed many thousands of people, tens right. of thousands of people, right. and Tokyo. So, I mean, so we were, so, so we, the Allies, the good side, right. as you know, is in our history books. We, we have technology now to kill vast amounts of citizens, and it's not our soldiers doing it. So it's not with sword and bullet where you right. see every victim that you are killing. Now it is you're flying a plane at the order of a commander, and you drop yeah. a bomb, and it, and it just decimates and burns thousands of people alive. I mean, and th there, there's no. You, you can't say that that's that that is not tied. That those decisions are not tied to our newfound ability to use weapons like that. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, I, absolutely, and I, and I think you're right. I, I don't think we, um, you know, the we is very generic here. I mean, many people do think very critically about this, right? But, but, but too often, I think it's it's. Um, we, we gloss over this, right? Uh, the amount of, of, of destruction that was caused, uh, and, and these thinkers that, that Jacobs highlights, they they knew that that was, uh, they, they thought critically about that. Uh, they had reservations. I think, you know, uh, Jacobs, if I remember correctly, highlights the kind of reservations that Lewis expressed and and that that he was criticized for expressing um, about the way that, that the Allies were conducting the war. Um, 
But right, it, it, it was unprecedented in scale. And I think you're right. Obviously, human beings have done horrible things to one another for, you know, since time immemorial. Um, but the scale at which this is happening and, 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 the, and the moral valence of it and, and that there's a trajectory here, right? You know, from, um, from what you're describing, the machine gun before it, right, to, to, to kill indiscriminately at great distances um, in World War I. Uh, to firebomb in World War II, uh, you know, to what we think of now as, you know, smart weapons or, or you know, back, you know, in the Gulf War, for example, you know, uh, where we, we have these grainy black and white videos of the smart bomb narrowing on it, you know, focusing on its target and landing and it's being launched, you know, from Kansas um, or directed from Kansas or whatever. And then the application, the, the possibility, almost uh, a certain use of um, autonomous uh, weapons in modern warfare. Um, and, and that, you know, there will be reasons offered for why, you know, it's necessary to use such weapons, but, but it, the, the moral dimensions, the, the consequences, you know, we, we need to grapple with them far more than I think many of us do. As a liberal society, and by liberal, I, I mean one who values freedom, above almost anything else it's it's always been difficult for us being essentially the big guy on the continent ever since we were i mean even when we were the 13 colonies that, that after we became the united states we, we have been relatively free from any any foreign mm -hmm. attack. And so our drive for freedom, along with increased technology, has rendered us largely unable to think about how the greater freedom of one always ends up being the less for someone else. Yeah, right. Right. And, you know, so, so I don't even know the answer. I mean, it's kind of a chicken and egg question, mm -hmm. but, you know, does this technol does greater technological capacity give rise to a more and more liberal state? Or is it the liberal state that unleashes the, the push for greater technology? And I don't have an answer to that. So yeah. how about you? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I'd say I have an answer. I, I, I think they're deeply intertwined, right? So, um, you know, speaking in, in kind of, uh, you know, very broad generalities, um, the, there, there's a entanglement of the, what we would think of as the techno-scientific dimensions of the Western, of Western modernity with its political ambitions and its economic markets, right? The, these are all entangled in ways that does make it, make it hard to separate them and say, you know, this is, this is a technological development. This is an economic one. This is a political one, but the the uh, ideology of freedom, if you like, right, that, that privileges a specific form of freedom, right? That that is, it's freedom from constraint uh, or negative liberty, um, and and that uh, resists limits. Uh, let, you know, let us put it that way. Uh, is empowered by the the technology so lewis in the abolition man is a beautiful paragraph where he you know he talks about how uh you know it, it was the, the characteristic of ancient wisdom uh to to realize or understand or believe that our desires needed to be conformed to an order that was external to us and that in in the modern world we've inverted that so that we try to bend the order of the world to fit our desires uh, and what has made that plausible, right? The only way that we could even think that as human beings, right? Because when Lewis says, you know, the, the, the ancient wisdom, the traditional wisdom of old, uh, he doesn't just mean Christian wisdom. It, it's just the default wisdom of, of human moral traditions, religious traditions, philosophical traditions, that there is an order beyond the human and that the human soul needs to bend itself to fit that order, right? Now, how you conceive of that order varies across all those traditions. But um, the, the, the fact that we can even begin to think differently is only plausible because of the power that modern science and technology grants the human being. Uh, and then all of a sudden you can begin to think about 
bending the world to fit our desires, right? And and you can do that, you know, broadly at you know at, at uh, you know at the level of, of, of humanity against nature, uh, and, and, but that feeds right into sort of you know consumer society where you know our our, our tools are at, at at our beck and call for us to you know bend the world to our uh, to our desires as much as we are able to, uh, and so that and, and and political liberalism to the degree that it uh, brackets substantive questions, uh, you know, that it, it, it refuses to sort of answer the question of, of substantive goods. Uh, it, it makes it extremely difficult then to have, to reflect morally about the implementation of technology in the way, say, that the Amish do, right? Um, because you, you simply, well, one, you don't really immediately think about technology as something to think about morally, right? You uh, you, you just develop it and, and you think of it as a good, almost an unalloyed good. Um, and then ultimately, when you're asking questions about technology, you, it's eventually a question about the human good, right? What is human flourishing? And what is the human being? Um, and so to, you know, there's, if, if, if you know, the liberal political order sort of brackets that question, then it is not equipped to to question technology critically and to, uh, bring it under political control, human political control, um, and and the, the, so you get a a, a co development right of of that impulse to master, to control, to bend the world to our will, of individualism, the power of the individual, uh, abetted by technology, and then in, in, in political spaces that are incapable of of, of bringing moral reflection. And deliberate political reflection to bear on on the question of technology, and all of that evolves sort of together. Yeah, that that would be the way I would kind of frame the relationship. And that bracketing of the the anthropological question about what is man, what is good, and such that's mm-hmm. that's been for a long time that bra- you know, that bracket has been handed over to the private sphere. The, the you know the, what we say well this is a religious question and as a liberal society right. we don't answer religious questions because we're publicly right. neutral right. but now we see we're actually not publicly neutral because whenever someone decides to speak to that whenever someone presents a view that is in contrast to the spirit of the age the spirit of the age, or at Rousseau's general will crushes them. Mm-hmm. It, it, right. it, it's I mean, not pretty. Right. No, no, there's, there's the, the neutrality, you know, is aspirational at best. Right. And then there was, it was always, you know, communitarian critics of, of, of liberal democracy have, um, you know, uh, I think written well about this over the years uh, that there's, there, there's all, neutrality always veiled um, existing moral commitments that were just, unacknowledged in some respects, right? Or it didn't create a level playing field, um, certainly not for, for substantive moral claims, right? So, um, and, and and then how you're, you know, it, 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 we are questioning technology, uh, you know, is something that I think we've done publicly a little bit more of, of late, uh, but, but for a long time, you know, it, it was simply to get labeled a Luddite, right? To be, you know, kind of laughed off, uh, as reactionary, um, and, and I mean, this is within, you know, even the span of brief span of time that I've been writing about these questions. You know, uh, you know, I'm, as as the joke goes, right? I'm old enough to remember when social media was going to usher in a golden age of democracy across the globe. Yes, um, yes, greater and, participation and more, fr- you know, greater liberalism for all. Right, and and a voice for everyone, and uh, you know, and, and the Arab Spring was kind of one kind of. Uh, supposed to be a kind of case in point of this, um, and and now the consensus you know has flipped in, in such a way that you know uh, social media threatens to destroy uh, democracy. A large article, a long article in the Atlantic, it just came out. I haven't read it yet. Called After Babel, in which Jonathan Haidt uh, seemingly frames social media as you know this Babel-like confusion of the tongues with permanent consequences. Again, I, I can't speak <laughs> to the merits of the article, right? But 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 we've come a long way uh, from from you know. When, when Twitter was going to spread democracy far and wide. Well, and, and with the help, certainly, of the United States government 
and 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 I mean even the the, the financial support that's given, which this is, I don't want to go too far down this trail, but I mean, our leaders have a vested interest in spreading certain supposed goods to the world. Right. Because the more we, I mean, it, it's another way of, of spreading our way of life. Right. Whether someone saying. wants it or not. Yes, right, right. Uh, Ivan Illich has a wonderful line about, uh, you know, how we might convince ourselves that, uh, convince ourselves to, to bomb our neighbors for their own good. Um, and so <laughs> there's, there's um, yeah, that, that's a lot of truth to that, right? You know, we're, we're, we're self-servingly, you know, creating markets for our products, our goods, uh, you know, trying to sustain a global economic order that works you know, in our favor at the, at the expense of others. So, yes, there's, and, and obviously there's a, there's a lot going on there. No. And I know Illich is, is, is a, a favorite of yours, and I, I wish we had a lot more time to talk about him. His, his rules are, excuse me, his book, the, um, the Rules of Conviviality or Tools of Conviviality? Uh, tools, tools for Conviviality. conviviality. Yeah. Okay, Tools, and which is where I'm guessing the title of your substack comes from. Right, right, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so, so what... And feel free to use Illich here as well as as I, I, it's time to start winding down. I know, but you know the emphasis of this podcast is helping people think about what a good life is and how to pursue it. Mm-hmm. So you know, considering Illich and, and, and any other uh, thinkers that that you would bring in, you know, how would you, you know, what can we learn? What is it that we can take from these, you know, fr- from these thinkers? Because right now, I mean, frankly, we, we're drowning in information. We have information not just at our fingertips. I mean, we're, it's already past our fingertips. It, and right. so, how do we carve out space to live well in the midst of uh, this sea in which we're swimming? Oh, man. Yeah. So much here. Right. So, uh, you know, Derek Thompson, a writer for The Atlantic, uh, you know, recently um, again wrote about uh, the, the growing um, amount of, of um, uh, mental illness, right, or, or, or mental health problems in the younger generation. And, um, you know, what I think we now call Gen Z. Um, and you know, he goes through and kind of does a sociological analysis of this, you know, it's good data. Uh, It's not just a function of greater awareness, you know, so that, you know, more people know what it is. So you have more diagnoses. Um, It's, and he explores a variety of um, of possible factors. uh, And and he ends up suggesting, you know, uh, the way I would put it is that, you know, maybe uh, the the constant 24 seven awareness of everything that's broken all the time has something to do with it. Right. and, and I think there, you know, there's certainly something to that. And, I, and, I, and you know, part of me wants to say is, well, it's not just the awareness, right? If, if things are really broken, right, around you, right, if, if your society is not functioning well, right, if it's not conducive to human flourishing, um, then it's not just that you're aware of it, but, but the awareness itself heightens, uh, perhaps, especially to the degree that you're not just aware of your, your own struggles, but you're aware of uh, what is going on uh, globally at any given moment. And, and I, and, and I want to be careful because I, I don't want to say, for instance, that, that we should turn a blind eye, for example, to what is happening in Ukraine, right? Um, and that the answer is simply to just live in a little cave of our own making. Uh, but it does raise this question, you know, when, uh, you know, 1990s, I remember, uh, you know, the promise of the information superhighway, you know, the idea that we're going to have the world at our fingertips. Um, and as with so many technological promises, right, they have a Faustian character to them, right? We, we were never quite told what the cost was going to be or that there even might have been a cost, right? Um, right. You know, I, I thinking, thinking of that in terms of just even the structure, right, of the temptation in the garden, right? You're offered this, but what's being concealed from you, right? It's a half-truth. You're, you're dealing in half-truths and, you know, there's always something concealed. So, uh, yes, I would say... One way of addressing this is sort of minding, reimagining limits 
as the conditions of our flourishing rather than as the obstacles that we need to overcome in order to flourish. All right. So Illich is very good on this. Uh, Wendell Berry, who had an affinity for Illich's work, your, your uh, listeners may be very familiar with Wendell Berry's work, I think has also been very good on this. You know, um, I think, you know, thinking about this theologically, right, I, I begin with a proposition, right, you know, that your uh, our bodies are good, right? And, but, but there are limits associated with our bodies, limits about uh, where we can be, uh, how we relate to time and place, uh, how, you know, the... the um, the frailty of the body, right? Which to some degree, I think uh, that we are called to, to just not solve, but bear. Uh, and I know that obviously requires a lot of further discussion to kind of elaborate and tease out. Um, and these limits, I think we've framed them in the modern world uh, as obstacles, right? That the, the, the happiness is always on the other side of more, right? Um, and so to, to sort of call that into question, to refuse that uh, framing of the good life and rather to recognize that some limits are there uh, because they are good for us, right? Um, and that's, that's one dimension. And, and that, that, I think, inf concerns information, right? Um, we, again, part of the, the uh, mythos or ethos of Western um, society has been that, you know, Knowledge is good. More of it is better, right? Unlimited knowledge is, is, is wonderful. Um, and so I, I kind of get the idea, right? You, you know, censorship is bad. You know, I can see the flip side of that, but, but unlimited knowledge all the time doesn't necessarily yield wisdom, right? Uh, T.S. Eliot has a wonderful kind of, um, um, it, it's in a course uh, from the play, The Rock, um, you know, where you know, where's the where's the life we've lost in living? He says, you know, where's the knowledge we've lost in information, the wisdom we've lost in knowledge, right? So um, you you have these different modes of knowing, and we're flooded with information, but very short on wisdom. And in fact, the glut of information may actively hinder our capacity to act and think wisely. Um, and I, I think echoing Illich here, uh, you know, one thing that's becoming increasingly evident to me is that we have become um, the, the, the formation, our society's default formations to form us as consumers, right? Who, when confronted with any problem or any unhappiness or any, uh, you know, un lack, you know, lack of comfort, our, our immediate, uh, you know, instinct is to to buy something, whether that's a, a thing, right, a possession or, um, or a service, right, or an experience. Um, and, and this is not just a kind of, I'm not, I'm not just echoing, uh, you know, the, the kinds of uh, you know, critiques of crass consumerism that have been around for a long time. I mean, that's certainly part of it, right? But, but, but even beyond that, right, that we have, what Illich would say is we have been de-skilled, right? I mean, and, and, and he takes aim at, uh, at schools, uh, at uh, the medical profession, uh, at transportation. In all these cases, what's happened is that we have been given a service where before we, we were able to, to care for ourselves and for our communities. Um, and so, I think we're, we're disempowered uh, we, and we don't get the satisfaction uh, and, and I think the, the emotional stability and strength that comes from uh, actively caring for ourselves and for, for our neighbor, right? And uh, I think there's a, uh, a way of maybe reading, misreading, I would say, Illich in a very kind of crass libertarian way, but, but you know, Illich's concern for autonomy and um, independence was always in the service of conviviality or interdependence, right? Um, and so, you know, there we, we've been offered this unlimited dream of a consumer society where everything we would want is at, at the tip of our fingers, whether it's information or you know, products on Amazon that can be delivered within 24 hours or less. Um, and, and we've given up on uh, community, I think, despite the fact that we're always saying we're hankering for it. Um, but uh, in practice, I think we usually choose against community. Um, we, we opt for, for entertainment. Uh, and a lot of this also, you know, is an understandable product of, of precarious, um, you know, economic conditions for large portions of our society. Uh, so there are a lot of factors, but I think we've, we've fundamentally generated a world that's very good at meeting, well, very good at meeting 
some material needs for some segment of the population, but very bad at meeting uh, what we might think of as our immaterial needs, right? Or, or, you know, if we want to put that theologically, our spiritual needs, you know, the needs of the soul, um, whether that's friendship, um, rootedness in place, uh, and a, a capacity to use our own resources to to shape the world around us. Uh, Illich has this great line where he says, you know, you can you you can either be rich in in uh, things or in the freedom to use them. Mm. Uh, and we've we've chosen to be rich in things, right? Uh, but we can't we are, are be skilled in countless ways that then leave us uh, as nothing but you know consumers of, of entertainment and um, and goods and services. So refusing that life, that vision of the good life, which entails accepting some measure of uncertainty uh, and giving up what we think of as control, uh, accepting a measure of risk, but then enjoying the fruits of that, um, I think would be my not so short answer to this to this question. And I think Elul and Illich and Barry certainly are three people that, that are immensely helpful in helping us think about that. Yes. Yes. Well, Michael, this is really good. It's a lot to process. So, 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 so this will be something good for, I think for people to, to listen to and don't speed the podcast up, <laughs> listen at the human scale because yeah, right, right. You know, this is, it, it, it takes a while to think through some of these things, which is probably why many people don't want to because we're moving so fast. Yeah. Uh, you know, as again, you mentioned Elliot courses from the rock. One of my favorite quotes from that is, uh, he says knowledge of speech, but not of silence, knowledge of words, lowercase W and ignorance of the word uppercase W. So, you know, yeah. those are, this it's a helpful conversation to have. So thank you for taking the time to, to meet with us today and, and Lord bless you in your work. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was, it was great to talk.